working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey, everybody. This is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to our 75th episode of the Working Drummer Podcast. I'm very excited to tell you about our guest today. It is the incomparable Peter Erskine. Most of you know who Peter is, but here's a little background. At a very young age, in 1972, Peter began working professionally playing with the Stan Kenton Orchestra. Four years later, he joined Manor Ferguson before working with Jaco Pastorius in Weather Report. From that point on, the list of artists that Peter has worked with is so extensive that I encourage you to check out our show notes to see a complete list. He's appeared on over 600 albums and film scores. He's won two Grammy Awards plus an honorary doctorate from Berklee School of Music. Peter has been voted Best Jazz Drummer of the Year 10 times by the readers of Modern Drummer Magazine. He produces jazz recordings from his label, Fuzzy Music, and is an active author with several books to his credit. He has also authored iOS play-along apps suitable for all instruments. So there's a little bit about Peter. You can go on our website, workingdrummer.net. You can find out more about this podcast, read the show notes like I had talked about. You can find out information about other podcasts on that website. Again, that's workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can go to iTunes where you can subscribe to this podcast. Please leave a rating and a review of our podcast. It helps us grow. We appreciate it so much. And as Zach has mentioned before, word of mouth also is a powerful tool. This episode of Working Drummer is sponsored by Sakai Drums. You know the Sakai sound, now get to know the Sakai name. Trusted around the world for almost 100 years, Sakai's devotion to craftsmanship and passion in creating the world's best quality drums is unmatched. Handcrafted in Osaka, Japan, Sakai offers the most versatile drums from the Trilogy Vintage Series to the modern almighty Japanese Birch recording kit, each boasting a distinct sound and feel. Go to SakaiDrums.com and learn why studio legends Eddie Bears and the Smashing Pumpkins Jimmy Chamberlain and Tedeschi Trucks band J.J. Johnson and Tyler Greenwell choose Sakai. Elevate your sound with Sakai. So here you go. Here is Peter Erskine. I came to Nashville uh, initially or primarily to uh, play in concert with Seth MacFarlane. We'll be uh, presenting a show in collaboration with the Nashville Symphony. Um, we decided to take advantage of my being in Nashville to schedule uh, a clinic uh, on behalf of Tama and Tom Star Drums right, right. Uh, that Forks put on. We didn't do it at the shop. We did it at a larger venue. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that your son yeah, enjoyed the stories. Great, and it was really great. There's a lot of stories, lots of, uh, lots of those things that I think we all could relate to in one fashion or another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, these are common things. I mean, you know, the two components uh, that I think uh, are, are very much of a part of making music. Number one, we're wrestling with the instrument. We're trying to learn uh, how to play uh, not just the kind of standard requisite things, whether it's uh, the basic rudiments or basic beats, getting our coordination together, so on and so forth. Um but it's it's also uh, you know the interaction with people and making music with other musicians, uh, which uh, involves not only the, that real time of music making on the bandstand, but 
the, the, the moments before you get on the bandstand, yeah. the moments you leave the bandstand, the time you spend together traveling, yeah. eating, whatever. Um, just having said that, it reminded me of, uh, of Weather Report. Um, there were a couple of, of drummers in the history of Weather Report. Weather Report had a lot of drummers yeah. who played with the band. And, uh, you know, most, most of them were, were great. Uh, but, a, but a couple of the great ones, you're like, why, why weren't they still playing with the band after a, a certain length of time? And, um, and Zavonel told me that, you know, that just a couple of them were, were rather unpleasant people to travel with. Or wow. Joe said this, just one guy was just so, so not fun to, to go out and, and have a meal with in a, in a restaurant. Right. Um, he uh, he antagonized the the the, the wait staff, you know, waitresses, or, <laughs> or and you know it's. I mean, this is life. Right. So uh, the first piece of advice I got from Joe Zavano when I joined Weather Report uh, didn't have to do with how to play a beat, yeah, or how to play the music. The first thing he said to me was, "Be sure that you that you uh, how do you, how do you say it?" He said. Be good to the people who handle your bags and your food. Mm. That was the first thing he told me. Yeah. Said, you yeah. know, to treat, treat these people well. And having mentioned Seth, at the beginning of this conversation, I was just speaking with uh, the woman who, who does his makeup. Okay. And uh, she said that when, when Seth is on a movie set, um, he thanks the stand-in. You know, a stand-in is, is a person of approximate the same height and complexion. Sure, sure. They, they, they do lighting and whatever. I have one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, she's worked on a lot of, uh, a lot of film and TV sets and she said, Seth is one of the few actors who will thank the stand-in. Hey, thank you. And the stand-ins are instructed, she told me, you know, you don't talk to the actor. Oh, yeah. And many actors, apparently, I, I didn't realize this, will treat uh, other people on the set like second class citizens mm-hmm. um, and you know that's just not a great way to go through life right. and 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 uh, you know I mean Seth is, is just a genuinely really incredible really nice human being that's awesome a brilliant guy he's very yeah, smart yeah. I mean his humor sometimes uh, right. uh, is sophomore um, <laughs> but who doesn't like you know good fart jokes sure <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan, it's, but that's so yeah. wonderful to hear. Yeah, he's great. I mean, he's he's polite, but he's sincerely polite. Yeah, you know, he he's one of those people that that lives in in uh, you know a state of grace as much as I think circumstance will allow. I'm, as as great as it is to have all the resources he now yeah commands with his wealth and his success, it's not, it's it's not easy terrain to to navigate in. I imagine. How did that uh, association happen? How did that gig come about for you? There are two people to thank. Uh, the, the first would be the bass player, Chuck Berghofer. Chuck and I uh, first met each other on a Pat Williams big band date. It was called Sinatra Land back in the late 90s. Um, and it was uh, love at first note. Uh, Chuck is... Uh, a bassist who's known for 
his association with, with Shelley Mann. He played with Shelley Mann's band. Uh, he worked with Frank Sinatra for many years. Um, he's the acoustic bass player on Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Were Made for Walking. Oh, really? Wow. Ding, 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 ding. Wow. That's Chuck. Nice. The theme to the TV show, Barney Miller, that's Chuck. Um, wow. So incredible wealth of experience. But, I mean, he just swings harder than than any bass player I've, I've ever played with. Is he and, available, maybe, for an hmm? interview? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really should. i got to go, Peter. Well, we, well, we can catch him at the bar later, maybe. Okay. Um, so he may have recommended me to to Seth, but also um, Joel McNeely, who arranged and conducted the first album that Seth made called uh, Music is Better Than Words. Uh uh, Joel contacted me and said, you know, I, I can't imagine doing this record without you, which was very nice. And, and the other nice thing was that uh, because Joel has been so immersed in writing film music, he does a lot of Disney films and okay. a wonderful writer. Uh, he had confessed, he said, you know, I've been out of the jazz game for quite a few years. So if, if anything smells funny, um, I'm not only inviting you, I'm counting on you to let me know. Oh, wow. so. Uh, everything smelled great um, but we did a take of one tune and uh, it's called Nine O'Clock and we're recording at Capitol Studios we're recording directly to two inch tape so there's no punching in or pro tool fixing it's you get it right or you do it again Um, and Joel writes great charts His, his drum parts aren't the most informative in terms of what I want to see. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it, 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 he would just print it out of like his MIDI file, uh, you know, whatever he made as a temp. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they're like, I, I won't have the brass figures, but I'll have uh, written fills and stuff. And I don't, I don't want to see any of that. I just want to know what the rest of the band is playing and then I can choose to either set it up or ignore it. At least, I can frame what right. I'm playing around that. Right. Um, so we're we're like on day three or day four of the recording, and this is with full big band and orchestra, and we run the tune down. I decide to to play just with the right hand on the cymbal, pretty much quarter notes and hi hat two and four, okay. and I had a pencil in my left hand because um, I thought it would save time as as we went through the chart. If I heard something that wasn't indicated, I would just make a mark. Was it typical to run the song down? Yeah, you always run it down, and they check for notes, and just, gotcha. let's see how this goes, and you make sure you have the right tempo, and so on and so forth. Uh, because when you when you record, you know, in, in most circumstances, you know, there's no rehearsal ahead of time. Yeah, you just right. show up, and you sight-read it, play it a couple times, and boom, they press the red button. So uh, they record the run-through, and... We then go into the control room, and I have my pencil and the part that I'm going to notate the, what the brass players have played. Otherwise, I have to run over to the trumpet player. Hey, Wayne Bergeron, a wonderful lead player. Uh, and we have an, uh, also a wonderful, incredible lead player here in Nashville with us, a guy named Dan Finero. Just what a great player. Anyway, I would go to Dan or Wayne and, you know, measure 33. Is that and a two, and a three? I don't remember. Oh, it's and a two. Gotcha. Because this helps. You do a little setup. So as I'm listening to it, I'm like, wow, this really 
it feels great. It's really yeah. swinging. But I make the notations, and we go in to the studio again and play it a couple times, and I, I do all the setups, and um, I'm doing my best imitation of Alvin Stoller, you know, from like a late 50s, early 60s L.A. studio recording. And we get what seemed to be the perfect take. So we go in to listen to it, and everyone's congratulating each other and themselves. And, wow, this is great. And I look across the control room to Chuck Burkhofer. And I made like a little frown, just like a little pout frown. And, and across the room, he goes like, what? What, man? I said, it doesn't swing as, as, as much as the first take did. Yeah. He goes, yeah, you're right. So I went to Seth and Joel and said, uh, hey, guys, you know, it's, it's a great take and all, but could we just do it one more time? And because Joel had placed this trust in me, he was immediately like, well, yeah, sure. But why? I, said, I think we can get it to swing more. Hmm. Now, the trumpet players weren't very happy about this, having yeah. to play it again. But uh, Seth was pleased because he's having fun. I mean. You know, he makes these records, he makes these trips because he loves this music. Right, right. So he says, yeah, let's do it one more time. So we play it, and I go back to the original idea of only playing quarter notes. I don't set up any of the big band hits. I don't do the typical fills. Now, one thing to keep in mind when you're recording in a room with with all the other instruments, which is how we did it, just like the old days. It's not just the drum microphone that's hearing what you play. The sax, trombone, and right. trumpet microphones are also hearing it to some yeah. degree. Yeah. So you you learn and recognize and, and, and understand why drummers on a lot of those recordings played the way they did, because you're in that room. And, and so you play less, and it's more effective. So we do it that way, and it's swinging like crazy. Mm. Not only because of the simplicity and that the thing could just bounce along, but it leaves something to the listener's imagination. Mm. The fact that I'm not playing a cross stick on two and four, one, two, three. Mm -hmm. It invites the listener to supply the two and four, whether in their body or their imagination. Another example would be uh, like James Brown, Mother Popcorn. So on beat four, there's nothing. Yeah. What do you do as a, as a dancer? You fill the spagus, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. You fill that space with your butt. Yeah. So, space is really, you know, it's it's they're the best notes, the ones you don't play. That's 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 what creates magic, and that's the problem with music that you know, like the fusion and 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 things where there's just so much drumming going on. Yeah. It leaves nothing to the imagination for the listener. The listener can't get drawn in. Interlochen is where I went to high school. Okay. Um, which was recommended to me by Professor George Gaber, who I met at the stage band camp because uh, Gaber was the percussion instructor at, at IU. And he had 
played on one of Stan's albums. He played timpani on okay. a record called Cuban Fire. So uh, Stan had, had recommended or made the introduction between right, right. Professor Gaber and my parents. And um, my first lesson with Gaber was something else. Uh, I was 12 years old by the time I finally got to take a lesson from him. And he sensed, you know, my performance anxiety. Uh, I, I wanted to play well. I needed to play well. I needed to get the praise or approval that mm -hmm. I had played well. Um, I played best when I felt I was playing well. You know, if, if I ran into adversity with a piece of music, uh, I, I would shrink from it. You know, it didn't bring out the best in me necessarily. Isn't that a common thing, though? We all want to do well. We all sure. want to play well. We walk away from good gigs just feeling great. It's very common. Yeah. It's human nature. Um, so Gaber wanted to address this before we did anything else. Okay. He put a piece of music in front of me. I'm standing at the uh, snare drum. And he sat back down at the desk. And he said, now I want you to play this piece of music. But if you play any of it correctly, I'm going to walk over there and I'm going to hit you with this mallet. So I, I said, excuse me. And he, he said, you heard me. I want you to play this piece, but if you play any of it right, I'm going to come over there and whack you with this thing. He said, it'll probably hurt too. Go ahead. <laughs> so I play it, every note wrong, upside down, ass backwards. I stop and I look at him. He takes a very satisfied puff on his cigar. And he says, uh, okay, now I want you to walk over to that window, look outside, tell me what you see. You can probably see where this is going. I look outside and he says, clouds still up in the sky? I said, yeah. <laughs> Trees are still firmly planted. The sky is blue. It seems like the earth is still spinning. <laughs> and he said, okay, come back. He said, now, he said, you played that exercise worse than anyone could possibly ever play it. And he said, and what happened? Nothing. Hmm. He said, now let's start. Yeah. So in one amazing fell swoop of a moment, he let me know that, you know, mistakes are welcome here. Hmm. And especially for, you know, any drummers who are studying in school, I mean, you're in a safe zone. And I, I tell my students that at the beginning of their, their term of study with me. I said, you are safe in here. I want you to make mistakes. It's kind of like you're going to the doctor, you know, and your knee is acting up. Yeah. When you're seeing the doctor, that's when you don't want the knee to be perfect. You, he goes, right. There doesn't yeah. seem to be anything wrong. You're fine. Yeah. No, it, believe me, it hurts. Yeah. Um, so... You know, when you're with a teacher, you you want those weaknesses to be apparent. Yeah. Uh, as well as the good things, you know. And we we should celebrate the good, but also embrace the bad, because the bad is there to teach us. Yeah. The best lessons I've learned were when I just played the absolute worst. I mean, embarrassingly bad. Mm. I'm talking, like, so bad that people don't even want to look you in the eye afterwards because they're so embarrassed for you. You know, some some musicians uh, don't falter like that. I can think of a few. I know a few who just, I've never heard sound bad. Wow. That's not me. 
I've sounded bad plenty of times. Lately, not so much, you know, because I'm, I'm 62 now, and I have a pretty good understanding, yeah. pretty good command of the instrument. Not always, but uh, not bad. And, um, you know, I trust myself. I trust the instrument. I trust music. I trust the musicians I play with. Yeah. And then, you know, you, know, you, you learn enough tricks if something goes a little south on the bandstand. Here's how you deal with it. Can I? Can we hang on teaching for a bit? Sure. I've got a couple questions. Um, I want to explore this idea of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Kind of this tough love way of approaching certain students in certain situations. I know you've had some experience with Joe in Weather Report where that might have been the case. It started. Uh, it started in school. We had a conductor. This was the interlock, and it was an excellent orchestra. Mm-hmm. When you heard an orchestra from interlock, and and this years before I was there, years afterward, I mean, you would know that's an orchestra from interlock. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a few years when you <laughs> that could be any high school orchestra. Um, the best orchestras generally were a product or byproduct of a conductor who demanded the best from yeah. these young and very talented musicians. Um, you dared not show up and not be able to play your best. You know, you you prepared, you 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 paid attention. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a time to go home. And it wasn't a time to be coddled like Okay, clarinets, it's getting better. You know, just keep trying. And, you know, that's not how you get an ensemble yeah. to to focus their best. It's, uh, you know, so so uh, I worked under conductors who were quite strict, who I also saw as, as very gentle, kind, great human beings. But they demanded the best that you could possibly give. Yeah. Right? And... They're not unrealistic demands or expectations. So when I'm teaching, yeah. I'm sure that that is apparent to the students because I've seen it work. And I've seen where just, well, that's good, you know. Right. Then, you know, then the teacher doesn't care. I mean, we have to, we have to be brave enough to really look this thing right in the face. Okay. What are we doing here? How do we want it to sound? Yeah. You know? And it's not even how maybe I want it to sound because I don't want them to play to please me. Mm-hmm. I want them to play so they feel like this is how, this is how I envision music being. Mm-hmm. And when I play, you know, I have no idea if, you know, Matt out there is digging what he's hearing and I, I don't have time to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be your cup of tea. It might not. But, you know, if I, if I live up to that musical moment mm-hmm. as best I can, yeah. that's the best I can do, mm-hmm. you know. And then that allows me to focus on the music. You know, if I'm focusing on, wow, David Garibaldi's just, oh, he's checking his text. <laughs> he's looking at his iPhone. He's not paying full attention to me. I must not be, you know, then that was just a, you know, just reflect an insecurity on my part. <laughs> If David likes it, great. And if he doesn't, cool, you know. (laughs) 
do you uh, are you familiar with uh, trombone player in Columbus, Vaughn Weister? Vaughn Weister. Uh, I, I knew he worked with Kenton uh, in the seventies. That might have been after. Okay. My time. Seventy six and beyond. Yeah, that was. Okay. I left the band in seventy five. I worked with him. Well, he was a professor of mine, but we worked together after school. Uh, I, I'd say I learned more from him after after graduation mm-hmm. than while in school. And it was a this was a Capital University. Yeah, and this is a twenty two piece big band with French horns and tuba Ooh, and wonderful nice. arrangements. Sight reading every Monday night. Great. He would be so tough on me, and yet, and I would be just broken down nervous and but I would shed and with every just uh, I don't know uh, with every just heavy handed instruction came this you got it good job come here I got a record for you he just had this push and pull kept it in balance you you know if you're going to take somebody apart you got to it's your responsibility to put them back together again yeah you know you can't so what what, so that means that you know it's like the whiplash uh, the movie, yeah, the, yeah, the, which is which is it. oh, you've not seen it. I've not seen it. Uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't capture the dynamic that that I've witnessed from just about every successful jazz educator I know, and the character in the movie is supposedly a successful jazz educator because his band is always winning first prize at these competitions. Um, so they set it up in in that kind of a framework, and it just that's not how it not how it works. Okay, it's Hollywood, and 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 any any time I've I've commented on it, people always come back. It's a you know it's 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 Hollywood. It's a drama, you know. Get a life. Don't be so serious. Or blah blah blah. Whatever. Um, believe me, I I understand Hollywood. I've worked there a lot of years, and, sure. and both my kids are in the business. Okay. Um, I was reading a magazine article that was uh, talking about the the TV show Homeland. Yeah. What's real and what isn't. Yeah. And I appreciated kind of finding out, yeah, what's real and what isn't. It didn't take away my enjoyment realizing that this is all completely nonsensical. But it was interesting to know kind of how this stuff like that really work in the real world. So... You know, when I'm asked to comment on the film, like, I said, well, just in, uh, speaking, you know, from my experience, real life, this is how it is. And uh, anyway, I'm sounding a little defensive about the criticism, but uh, j- just like you said, and I'm sorry I interrupted you. No. Um, the toughest musicians I've worked for, the yin and yang was always there. They always balanced it with 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 humor with kindness and, yeah. uh, you know, maybe off the, the, the podium or bandstand. Um, and and as, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the, the, you have a responsibility if, if you begin to dismantle uh, any young musician or less experienced musician's sense of where they fit in the world or their self-esteem or confidence, you got to build that back up. Right. I mean, that's the whole point of it. If you're just, if you're just going... Uh, uh, you know, like uh, Sherman's march through Atlanta. <laughs> Good reference. <laughs> just, like just to uh, yeah. just to burn and pillage. Yeah, that's all you're doing, um, and that's not positive. 
we're in the southeast. People like Civil War references. That's really great. Do they? Yeah. I, you know, I was in uh, years ago. I was somewhere down south, and there was a a, a, a Statue of Liberty a statue, but much smaller. Yeah. And uh, the, the guy said, well, "See that." that we got second prize. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, uh, yesterday at the clinic, uh, just real quick, you uh, were talking about a song title. Was it, uh, I got tears in my ears. Oh, I was, I just, yeah, I was just lying in bed, crying cry, over you. Cry, something like that. Is that it? That's it. I, I got, got tears in my, tears I've been here for 16 years. I can tell you. I got tears in my ears from, from lying in bed, from lying in bed, crying, uh, something about not the pillow. I got tears in my ears from crying on my pillow. Yeah. You know, somebody's going to write in and correct me. Good. Well, please correct us. <laughs> we we got to get know. to the bottom of this. A question from Zach. You've been teaching a long time, and the music industry has changed a lot over that time. When it comes to what students need to make a living, what are some of the what are some of the things that have changed about how or what you teach, and what are some things that will never change? Hmm. Thank you, Zach. Good question, uh, as always. Well, the, the level of playing. Uh, to me seems better than than ever mm. i mean what what the students can do the, the the boundaries that that keep getting pushed by generation after generation of, of drummers the drummers who become all styles you think yeah or, yeah yeah i mean I, mm-hmm. uh, uh playing techniques seem to be more evolved uh because of media now being yeah on demand you know when i was young you had to you had to plan to watch something on, on television or just be lucky enough to catch it. Right. Um, and if you missed it, you're out of luck. Yeah. On the other hand, we got to see a lot of great groups live. So most people my age, that was the primary source for our education. Yeah. So a little more YouTube-based now, I think. Yeah. But the the amount of available materials, endless. Amazing. So students are really... Uh, getting hip to a lot of things. Equipment is better. That you know, uh, so so the, the level of playing is is is, is very high. Um, as I mentioned in the clinic last night, the disadvantage that we're all facing is that we're trying to reach that level of playing of our heroes, yeah, the men and women uh, who created this language and, and the drums. It's been primarily guys up until the last 20 years sure um or so i mean terry lynn's been doing it longer uh so these are musicians who were playing six seven nights a week six seven hours a night possibly yeah uh and often playing opposite like the best bands in the world you know, you look at some of the old posters in New York Jazz Club, you know, Art Blakey's band, Cannibal Adderley's band, or right. you're playing opposite Miles band. So, you know, that brings up the level of, of the game. Yeah. Quite a bit. And, you know, if you're a student and you get to play a couple times a week in the jazz combo, it's cool. It's like, how do, how do we get to that level? And, and a lot of that level is then not just technique or figuring out how Tony Williams played these things, but it's more 
why did he think of that in the first place? And and what's the language? What's the vocabulary? And then mm -hmm. it's that it's it's that dialogue that's happening between the musicians. So the challenge is you have to get yourself into a playing environment and play as much as possible. Yeah, that's that's the, the I think the the one of the biggest responsibilities for educators and for students. We we have to get everyone playing as much as we can in addition to practice time all those things um, but knowing how to perform and work with other players well sure and 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 they'll glean a lot of that just by by virtue of the experience they get but we also can save them a bit of time and trouble uh, by telling them and that's the purpose of a lot of the stories I tell the, sure, sure the folly that yeah. we uh, can find ourselves uh, running around in circles in. So, uh, the work environment uh, has been undergoing uh, change in, in terms of the opportunities for musicians. Um, this kind of uh, democratization of recording. You know, in the old days, you had to save up and, and either purchase time in a recording studio mm. or you had to be uh, uh, invited, you know, yeah. become a member of that club, you know, get on that list. Somebody right. call you to come and, and perform in a recording studio. Yeah. Uh, and in the old days, I mean, coat and tie, you know, it was a sacred kind of place almost so it was only in the 60s when, when I mean LA they were always a little bit more casual but you look at photos from recording sessions in New York they've been you know, dressed up like they're going to work um, oh, that's true <laughs> and and there's a magic that occurs when you get that much talent in one room and it's a good sounding room and you have a good engineer and then you're uh, presented with the opportunity to either improvise or to read and create an ensemble thing uh, you know, now people recording in, in, in garages or, or, or people's second bedrooms and homes. Right, you know? I right. mean, the, the, the technology, I mean, just this digital recording device that we're speaking into yeah. was unthinkable not right. too long ago. Right. Uh, so, you know, anybody can make a record now. It's not to say that bad, work, bad records weren't made in the past. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, you know. So... Uh, we can we can get our music out there. Who's going to listen to it? With so many recordings out there, well, that becomes part of the the trick or the challenge. Um, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to to have played in a lot of really good bands, and uh, and I'm, I'm I've made a lot of recordings. I think it counts almost up to seven hundred albums right. now or something. Who's counting? But well, have to. <laughs> I was, I was thinking of the world's fourteenth most recorded drummer. <laughs> really? No, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> uh, who knows and who cares? You can tell me that. Sixteenth, okay. maybe seventeenth. I don't know. Okay. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, the, the world's most recorded. Whatever. Okay. So, um, I've still had to create my own means of getting my music out there so I started a CD label right 
primarily because I got tired of waiting for someone who either was dressed in a suit or wearing a black turtleneck shirt to say, okay, um, we agree it's time, let's make this record. Because you're you're just one of many artists, and I get all that. And do you have a wood beater? Hmm? And and oh. and can you put a wood beater? Oh, a wood beater. Well, no, that's no, that's a sideman thing. You know, okay. <laughs> when when I'm hired to to come work on somebody's project, right. I'm hired to help that artist uh, realize right. their vision on right. something. Well, and and and, 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 and so I had no problem. Yes, for a wood beater. Okay, right. Sure, if you hear it, I'll try it. And See that's related to a story that you told at your clinic last night. The Rod need Stewart to, session. We don't need to go into. We don't need to rehash it, but I can tell you that. It was it was telling in the way you told the story that when the producer was asking for these things that you knew just this is crazy, but your attitude and your response was okay, sure. Well, yeah, I, you know, the one of the biggest favors anyone ever did for me was a producer who called me up when I first moved to New York, yeah, morning after a session. And he called, and I, oh, hi. And he said, listen, he said, I just want to tell you, you and your bullshit jazz attitude was a total drag last night. And I didn't appreciate it. No one else in the control room did either. And, uh, you know, you're devastated when you, uh, oh, geez. You know, and I'm trying to be smart, Alec, and I was talking too much. And so, obviously, you get a phone call like that. You think about it. I said, mm-hmm. all right. What prompted that phone call? Well, my behavior did. Mm. And if you're working, whether it's a film, TV show, someone's on, whatever, the person that you're coming in to help realize, I mean, they, he or she has a lot of things on their mind. Right. right? And you're just part of the team. Yeah. And if you want to call excess attention to yourself or say, dumb things or make inappropriate comments at the wrong time. That's sort of a redundancy there. But <laughs> um, Plenty of musicians who have better manners that, that are waiting in line for their opportunity. Sure, sure. Um, and so it, it, was a, it was a terrific lesson and, and it made me put a check on, on my arrogance and my need to like say something to get a laugh or to, to be the center of any kind of attention. Um, so, you know, I learned it. You pay attention. What will help the artist realize your thing? Now, uh, you know, say, hey, Peter, we want you to you know, play this, play this like Omar. I th- well, I, you know, I don't know if I can because Omar does Omar better than anybody. And I, you know, I can't. But if they say it as a reference, like, you know, Omar did a thing like this, I'll say, I'll do my best to, to, to give you that. You know, I don't say, like, well, if you want Omar, get Omar. Because right. that's defensive and dumb. But I do my best, and I also try to do my best to stay out of situations where I wouldn't be the right guy. Mm. So sometimes I'm contacted by somebody that they think they want me on a project. Mm. And I might ask, you know, can I hear a little bit of the music? To make sure I'll be the right person for this. And I'll sometimes say, you know, I'm not the right guy. And who did I learn that from? Jeff Percaro. Not personally, but I read, yeah, he was something. He said, you know what? I'm not the right guy for this. You should, you should, you should call this guy. Yeah. And it was just Jeff being honest. 
Uh, and I mean, I once I once showed up on a film scoring stage, and it was a, there were some heavy metal cues, and I was thinking, you know, of the studio guys I knew at least. I thought, well, you know, Greg Bissonette should be doing this, not me. I didn't, I didn't even own a double pedal, so I faked it as best I could, yeah. and tried to give it the attitude. Yeah, but you know, had I had I known that's what the call would have been, I would have, I would have said no. You should get somebody else. Well, can I just, I want to relate a story. Uh, I had a chance to meet uh, Kenny Arnoff uh, a couple times, but the first time was at a clinic in Columbus. Mm -hmm. He said to me, he goes, I get these questions where, hey, I want to learn this, this, this Latin style. I'm working on this funk thing. I'm working on this fusion thing, this rock stuff, the swing patterns and stuff like that. What do I do? And I was in that boat. I was working with all these different types of bands, pop to Brazilian to big band. And I didn't know what I wanted to do wanted to do. And I was thinking about moving to Nashville. And he goes, I do like three or four things really good. And I've made a career out of it. Mm -hmm. And he goes, So you can have ten C minus grooves or you can have three A plus grooves. It's a good point. Now Kenny was the top classical percussionist at Indiana University. Right. When I returned to school there, I did three years on the Kenton band. I went back to college and Kenny was was the top guy there for good reason. He was yeah. Phenomenal player. He was the best yeah. player in the school. Um, I heard Kenny play drums a couple times, and he was like playing in a sort of like you know blue note jazz kind of cover band, and then yeah, it was kind of C minus, you know, to <laughs> use his term. Um, and I remember when I first joined Weather Report, Kenny was in Los Angeles, and we got together. We're drinking a beer, a couple beers, and he said, "Yeah, you know, I'm." I'm I'm working for this guy. I'm in this band, and he's really, he's really busting my balls about you know I got to play more simple, and uh, I don't know if I should. But after another beer or so, we we both decided like yeah, it seems like, like, pretty good gig. You know, you might as well stick with it, which I'm sure he was had already figured out he's going to do is yeah. you know, John Cougar Mellican. Sure, um, and and Kenny, yeah, he took that to. The edge of like, how great can you play that stuff? He mm. plays it better than anybody, and and I couldn't do it, you know. I that's you know D minus if I tried to play that stuff. <laughs> um, so yeah, you find your thing, and and a, and a lot of that is following your passion. Uh, but it, it you know, you want to always keep your ears open. You have to listen to every kind of music because there's so much information and inspiration out there waiting to be discovered right. you do yourself a disservice mm -hmm. if you don't listen now i'm i'm 62 now i said i said it before there i'll say it again <laughs> um and uh, you know thankfully and i'm very grateful for uh, you know i'm very busy but so i don't have the time that i used to you to seem listen. more busy now then it seems like you've had this career acceleration. It's weird. Yeah. What 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 do you think is the reason for that? Or what what have you done to to make that happen? I don't know. It's probably be, better be, be question. Be careful. <laughs> be careful what you wish for. Uh, no, I'm I'm exceedingly uh, grateful, uh, but I'm I'm having trouble keeping my head above water just with the schedule, just the, yeah. the reality of the calendar and. And 
I try to honor any requests, accommodations, favors people Thank you ask. For this. Yeah, sure. Thank you. But it's get, you know it's, it's getting kind of jammed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my goal was to stay home more. Now, that's part of the reason I I committed to the teaching position at the Thornton School of Music at USC. And we have great faculty there. The school's a tremendous magnet. Um, but it 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 takes a lot of time. Yeah. And and when you when you reach uh, the age of sixty two or whatever, you become a little bit more aware of, you know, maybe with the time I got left, and who knows how how long that's going to be. Uh, teaching is important, but there are some musical things I really would still like to accomplish, and things that I would like to do for the benefit of my family and just mm-hmm. for anything in particular. Fellow man, just I want to write more music. Yeah, you know, and that I I don't say that's for the benefit of humanity. That's just what the world needs another song. But, um, yeah, I I I think there's there's something there that that maybe could touch as many or more people than than I do by by locking myself in in the studio with uh, with twelve or fourteen students every semester. I mean, wow! That's like it's it's over three hundred private lessons a school year I'm wow. giving. Wow! Um, and I'm really proud of of all the students, and they're mm-hmm. great players, and they have the passion. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, so many of them are going on to doing exciting things on their own, and that's because of the the well-rounded education they get. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I what were the what were the best lessons I got? Sure, they were about touch and tone, but Gaber spent as much time talking to me about, you know, have the courage to say no. If you have a weekend getaway planned with your family and then you get called for a gig, mm. you know, it's, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Yeah. Just say no. Yeah. They'll always call you again. Yeah. If you're a good musician, you'll always get called, mm-hmm. whether you're in Nashville or Los Angeles or wherever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I call musicians that can't make it. I'll call them again. Yeah. You know, if I want that particular voice, you have to develop yourself as a human being, not just a drumming machine. Right. You know, I mean, drum machines, you order them from Sweetwater and it's great. You push a button, boom. That's right. People don't use drum machines much anymore, do they? It's all computers. It is, and it's loops and different things. Well, and we touch upon this a lot. Uh, I think our listeners are a wide age group, uh, age range. Uh, You met my 14-year-old son. I've got Mm -hmm. two sons, and it's a constant struggle to find that balance. And so it does come up very often. Yeah. It reflects in your work. It reflects in your relationships on the road when family is good or bad. Um. And some musicians have, you know, I mean, everything has a, has a price. Yeah. So uh, you maybe can achieve greatness in one area, and it's hard to feel that you're being great maybe in another area. So yeah. maybe that, that the, the three A-plus grooves is, is similar to life. You know, you want to try to be A-plus in every aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. Certainly with your family, I think that's important. If, yes. if your family life is C-minus, no. uh, you're not going to be happy. No, you know, and the people you love and care for yeah. aren't going to be happy. And if I can't make the people who mean the, the most to me mm. happy, then what am I doing all this other shit for? Right. What 
to get my name in Modern Drummer. No, I like Modern Drummer. Um, but no, done it. Been that's there. you know. New record, Doctor Um. 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 What do you th- what do you think the title means? Let's visualize it. D R U M. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Doctor Um. I uh, halfway through my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Drum. Doctor Um. Doctor Um. Drum. Um, He's wearing the black. My friend, uh, my friend Jack Fletcher, years ago called me up. And he said, "There's a payphone in Hawaii. He was on vacation." And he said, I've, I've got it. You are Dr. Um. He said, jazz has gotten really boring, and we got to present you with lights and sound and just do something really fun and theatrical. And he was a theater director. And he does uh, uh, voice uh, directing now for, mm-hmm. for games and animation. Uh, and on Dr. Um, he does some narration on the album. Oh, so uh- I just had to have him on it. Uh, Dr. Um was, uh, uh, or represents a, a return to a lot of the stuff that I'd kind of put on hold for many years. Yeah. Kind of more backbeat fusion, but from a slightly more seasoned perspective. Um, and, and the idea of the album was to give music, uh, a, a first or, or, or a second chance of being heard some songs that just had, I felt been overlooked. Um, we just did a new album. We recorded at Sweetwater Studios mm. up in Fort Wayne at the Sweetwater oh, yeah. headquarters okay. facility. Great studio. Mm. Uh, engineer Mark Hornsby uh, really uh, captured, I mean, the sound. I, I, I love the way it's sounding. And what was interesting about that album, so the first album, Dr. Um, John Beasley and I spent a lot of time in pre-production, preparing the music, really thinking about it. And this recording came up kind of suddenly it's a long story I won't go into uh, so we're kind of doing pre-production while we're each at our instruments and kind of talking through ISO booth uh, glass doors and walls mm-hmm. through, the, through the microphones and which is annoying <laughs> uh, so we're all getting really annoyed and of course they're documenting the whole thing on video so we're just going to look like four very annoyed guys or at least three the, the bass player Benjamin Shepard who's going to be a, a star this guy 26 year old bass player from New Zealand oh wow just phenomenal the heart and soul of the whole album this oh, guy cool um, he, he was in a good mood throughout uh, but th- that process brought an edge to some of the things that we might not otherwise have had and and so I'm I'm almost I, I actually maybe more excited by the sequel to Dr. Um, and by the time we get finished mixing, and I, there's some things I want to do now that I see the album shape. And because uh, you know, listening to an album as opposed to you, you can listen to individual, individual tunes, but yeah. I like to think of an album as an arc, yeah, it's just like a movie, yeah. And final bit of advice for, for the listeners you know, if, if you're in a recording studio, you got to think about the album. As an example, I was listening to uh, uh, an album that a, that a vocalist had, had put on her site because I uh, wanted to recommend her for a project. Mm-hmm. First tune. Do, 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 do. Okay. Now listen a bit. Second tune. Do, 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 do. Didn't the drummer just play that on the yeah. third tune? 
dun, 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 dun. I was like, wow. The drummer's not think, you know. Yeah. You don't start every tune with the same pickup. And you don't know which take they'll use yeah. on a tune. And you don't know the sequence, which tune will be where. Especially but as a sideman. You don't repeat yourself like that. Yeah. You know, you have you kind of keep track. You're in the moment playing what needs to be played and yet I also keep track it's just like continuity in a film how is this going to be perceived Mm -hmm. by the viewer or by the listener so I keep a a tally sheet kind of somewhere All right, you did that and if they don't use that take fine you don't get that lick on this record who cares (laughs) but if you play that lick twice and the songs are one after another it sounds dumb it's inauthentic and it's just it calls attention to itself by mm, the mm. by the redundancy of it. Sure, sure. So that's my okay. That's my professional recording advice. Is the that Doctor Um is that that's available, isn't it? Yes. Okay, you were talking uh, about the fuzzy fuzzy music. Fuzzy music, which is your label. Yeah, which you you can find all the fuzzy music titles at petererskin.com. You can also get the album at Amazon, uh, okay. or, you can, or you can download it digitally, wherever. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not streaming it. I made a choice not to not to go streaming on, you know, Apple Music or with Spotify. I just, mm-hmm. I'm my jury's not not in yet on on that stuff, and and I just thought I'm going to withhold this album. Yeah. I, I, maybe that's the Adele uh, decision around the same time. I think she was doing that too, but I just thought. You know, let's if people want to hear it, and they have to make a little bit of effort. There's a little bit of a video though that that just kind of you describe it and say this is kind of a we're going back to some of this. Yeah, I'd be grateful if you include the link. There's a little. Of course, yeah, there will um, be links for sure. And I can I can work with you and send you some other sure. links. So yeah, it's 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 fun to look back. I mean, you know, right now I'm really fascinated. Uh, you know, thinking back to 1972, I was 18 and and. And the years leading up to 72, there was so much excitement mm. in the music world in terms yeah. of the recordings coming out. It just seemed like genres were just colliding into one another and, mm-hmm. there, and, and the explosion or the explosive results of that were just thrilling. Um, and it's natural when you get older, you think back when you were younger. And, and but Peter, I think everyone agrees been, with you. I think that era from, from 1964 to... I mean, just like this explosion of music and art. Yeah, like 64 to 74. I don't even know if I'd go up to 74, but it was pretty... My son I would, well, I, you know, I, believes I, that. I would go all yeah. the way up to like Heavy Weather. Okay. Because Heavy Weather to me was, was like the peak expression and bringing together of all those things. It's still my favorite Weather Report album. Mm. You know, my favorite Weather Report drummers usually don't include me on the list. <laughs> <laughs> um and there's so many I don't want to start listening because I, I love the way these these guys played. But I mean, yeah. you know, the way Alex Acuna played on Heavy Weather is yeah. so f- fresh. Yeah. And where the band was at and the sound of that album, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's as good as any Beatles record mm-hmm. in terms of shelf life. Yeah. You know, it just sounds oh. it sounds like tomorrow. I have it on vinyl. I love it. Isn't it great? Super wonderful record. You've got the 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 play along apps. Uh, Those are pretty great. Yes, the the big band app is is spectacular uh, because not just for drummers, but you know you can do multiple minus. So yeah. a drummer bass player yeah. could 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 work on this. 
uh, lead trumpet, second trumpet, minus alto, tenor, barry, first trombone, bass trombone. We wanted to make this as as inclusive Mm -hmm. as possible. Um, The jazz essential apps are more just regular piano trio. Yeah, rhythm section, bass, and they function well as karaoke. You know, if you're a vibes player, sure. play along. And it's not MIDI. I mean, these are real musicians making real musical choices and swinging. Right. right. Um, and and so the apps have been real fun. You know, I've I've always liked technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, uh, I, and this was covered before in some other interviews. So, uh, but but you do you have a new big band app that's coming out? That that's you? out. Okay, that's so out. the 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 album is coming out next month. It's from all the tracking we did for the big band app. It's Mincer for Bob Mincer. Mincer Big Band Essentials. Okay. And the app yeah. is free. You get two songs. I have it. And then so. you can purchase uh, individual songs yeah. or uh, the complete package at a discount. Gotcha. Um, they, what they call that freemium. I think <laughs> that's, that's in the game world. Uh, yeah. But that seemed, that seemed to be not a bad idea. Uh, to get people familiar with it, and and yeah, the app is well. You heard it last night. That's how I. Began oh yeah, to play yeah. It. No, and I have volume one, and and I'm going to be on the road next week, and I'm going to be stuck in a room, and I'm going to be pulling up essentials with my brushes on a telephone. They don't have telephone books anymore. You know what's great? If uh, I mean, you can play brushes on anything, but uh, the Rhythm Tech, uh, the laptop. You know, uh, for, for brush practicing or for rehearsals, yeah. you just take that, your brushes to any hotel room or rehearsal space if you're working with a singer. It's all you need. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's really convenient. So, oh. yeah, you can you can work on a lot of brush things. Yes. And if you're really feeling ambitious, sneak your hi-hat in there. <laughs> just work on some of that stuff. Hey, I'm sorry to end this. Hey, i got to go. No worries. Peter, thank Pleasure. you so much. I Thanks, appreciate Matt. it. Thank you all. So again, I want to thank Peter for his time. I so appreciate him carving out a little bit of time. For uh, most of us, we have been following Peter for many, many years, and um, I've just always been a huge fan. This is about the third time I've had a chance to meet him. As soon as I heard him with Eliana Elias, I was a lifelong fan. And he's so passionate about education and the clinic he held the night before here in Nashville was uh, really fun, insightful, and uh, full of those stories that uh, he talked about. As always, I want to thank Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interviews. Again, everyone, thank you so much for your support. Um, It's just encouraging to see the feedback uh, on all the social media outlets. Continue with the hashtag Working Drummer We'll find that and repost it. Any comments uh, that you include on iTunes, again, uh, is super helpful in, in helping us grow. So again, very excited to say this is our 75th episode. We're just keeping on, uh, keeping on. We've got more exciting things coming along, and I hope you enjoyed this. Keep in touch with us, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.